If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Will Erskine booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Rumor has it the Prime Minister is making changes and shuffling his cabinet. Many are wondering when we can shuffle him. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. It's lots going on today. Uh, And and the big rumor is, well, let's build up to this, shall we? Uh, uh, Sad news in Nova Scotia. I mean, the flooding that's going on there and people are missing. We're keeping our uh, ears close to that one. And we'll bring you updates uh, with the news department as soon as we find out anything more uh, as they continue to cope out in Nova Scotia. And our hearts and thoughts go out to uh, them. Uh, What else we got going on? Uh, Twitter is now X. Does anybody care? Like, who cares? Who gives a... Like, it's amazing how many people are just obsessed with the life and times of Elon Musk. Like, I just don't get it. Like, you know, he's he's a, he's a genius, he's electric cars and rockets, and and now social media, which is I really, I think, just like a pet hamster for this guy. Uh, but anyway, I, I, I'm the only thing that, that, that turns me off more than Elon Musk are all... Everybody just having a, an obsession with what he does. And so current, uh, concerned about his next move. He's playing you all like flutes. Uh, just saying. Anyway, Twitter's now X. All right. Uh, the world has changed. Uh, anyway, uh, what else we got going on? Uh, more being spent on nurses, uh, especially in the private sector. Uh, that's called reform. And, you know, we've talked about this before. The only ones that seem to be really concerned um, or, or against the reforms that we're doing are the unions that have benefited from the same old system, which is tired and inefficient for decades and decades and decades. What's important to Canadians is that the healthcare system is getting better. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that we are moving in that direction. Lots of work to be done, uh, but we are moving in that direction. Cabinet shuffle, the big distraction of the day. Uh, the Prime Minister back from uh, Tofino. What? Was he surfing? I don't know. Anyway, they're all back so uh, they can meet up with the Prime Minister because you know he's got some issues on his hand. He's got a PR problem. got a communications. People are booing. Uh, and, and, and it's interesting because it seems that um, uh, he, he's, they're just having a really hard time uh, accepting the fact that people are tired of the Prime Minister and they really want him to move on. And uh, so they're going to shuffle the Cabinet, which leaves many... Well... <laughs> He's doing the exact same thing as the cabinet. You know, he's as uninformed as the cabinet is. So why why are they going and he's staying? Like, if you're an MP, you know, and you think, well, why am I getting the boot? You're the one driving this bus. I'm just selling your message. And, you know, it's like Marco Mendicino, who's become the new whipping boy for the, uh, for the federal government because of his obviously screw-ups beyond belief. But is it any other screw-up uh, any different than what the prime minister's doing? You know, we're complaining that Mendocino didn't know anything about the, the the Bernardo transfer. Well, neither did the prime minister. And also, let's talk about CSIS and the alleged Chinese election interference from the Chinese Communist Party. The prime minister had no idea, even though his staff had been notified by CSIS, much like Mendocino's gang from Correction Services. So it's amazing. I don't know how he can stand up. And blow all these people out, or shuffle, which is the polite word of saying, uh, you're in, you're out, and and not look in the mirror. Because he has made 
every single mistake that all of these ministers who are about to get ousted have, uh, and in many cases, more. So he, and, and usually when they're screwing up, it's covering up for crap that he's done. So uh, I, I find it utterly, it just, it just fascinating that, you know, uh, the whipping boy for the government has become Marco Mendicino when the prime minister is guilty of exactly the same thing. He had no idea that there was uh, Bernardo, the most notorious Canadian killer. He has no idea, uh, just like Mendicino had no idea. Both staffs were notified. CSIS, uh, election interference, same thing. Office is notified. Nobody finds out. But it's time to change the people around the prime minister, uh, which is basically like getting the same old Christmas present that you tried to take back. But now it's a new wrapping paper. So it'll be fascinating to see how this all comes about and where all and everybody ends up and whether this is enough to make everybody forget uh, just how incompetent this government has become and literally just not aware of what is going on. Uh, some say it's getting old. I don't think that intelligence was ever there in the first place. Uh, I've had um, years and years and years of interviews with academics. I've yet to hear anybody call the prime minister a great leader. And new polling out said he's one of the worst. Uh, unlike his father, who was apparently one of the best. So uh, it's fascinating to see how this all transpired, uh, transpires. And once again, uh, Teflon Justin seems to skip it all, and everybody else uh, around him takes the brunt. So it'll be interesting to see how this, and many are saying that this is uh, the last shuffle before an election. Some are saying, no, there'll be at least one more before an election. It's uh, it's the prime minister whose cabinet continually is a uh, is changing, but unfortunately, uh, the man at the top isn't. It'll be fascinating to see how this all rolls uh, coming out. How are you spending your summer now that uh, we're in a post pandemic world? How about an RV? What attracts people to the RV life? I remember as kids, man, we started as a tent trailer and then worked our way up, and when the kids got bored. Uh, the parents left us and got their own fifth wheel and off they went without uh, without us. And the rest is history, as they say. You're either into it or you're not. Well, here's someone that decided they were into it. Uh, Nikki Fiera is with us, RV enthusiast in here now. Nikki, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks, Scott. All right. I must admit, I saw your story in the spec and I thought it was kind of cool the way it all sort of transpired. Uh, tell everybody how you got into this. Uh, it was a bit of a fluke. Um, my idea of camping until we started with the RV was going to the Hilton, to be honest. <laughs> and um, during COVID, I mean, I had no idea that everybody and Bob and their uncle were buying RVs. And mm. one day my husband decided, let's go look at a trailer. I was like, really? And we did. And I was like, okay, I can, I can maybe do this. And um, yeah, four years later, I guess the rest is history. And we're on, well, we were on the road. We went seasonal this summer. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've been on the road, traveling around, checking out so far just Ontario and uh, living the RV life and seeing what we have to offer out here. So what was your camping experience prior to this for you and your hubby? Nothing. We had a boat. <laughs> that was it. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we had a boat. I think the last time I went camping, I was probably about 18 years old. So uh, this is a big step because this is a, ma- a big expense. you got like a 44-foot uh, fifth wheel, and anybody who knows anything about camping, you need big pickup truck, everything. That's a big unit. Um, uh, you went all out. Uh, was that a big step for you? Um, it was a bit of a step. I mean, we have, the, we have this pickup for our company. We own a business. Right. So we had mm-hmm. the tow vehicle. So yep. 
it wasn't as cumbersome for someone new just coming into the uh, right. lifestyle in the industry and not knowing anything. Um, thankfully, Hubby has the experience with towing trailers, so <laughs> yes. it wasn't so bad that way. But uh, yeah, just the whole living outside, living off grid sometimes, and that was that was definitely something new. Didn't know what to expect. So tell us about that first couple of uh, trips. What was that like for you? What what was the buzz? Um, you know what? It was pure terror, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> It was pure terror. It was, okay, let's go. And I very quickly learned you need to roll with the punches, no matter how mm. planned out everything was and how meticulous I thought I was. Something's always going to go wrong. And I mean, the first weekend we ever went out, it poured all mm. weekend. So we had no idea. So we weren't just, we went around with that. We ended up finding the closest Canadian tire as much rain gear as we could mm. and just made the best of it so you look lo- you learn along the way and yeah the first couple trips out were kind of oh my gosh what did we bite off more than we can chew but um you know what you you learn quickly and um i was lucky i found a great social media group that uh, helped guide me along the way so is this just you and your husband that are doing this or the kids are in tow or not um initially our son joined with us Mm-hmm. And now he's just knowing, he's like, I want to stay home. I want to work. Yeah. So sure. Kids, no, they come down, visit for the day, and then they take off. So right now it's just, I guess, hubby and I finally getting some alone time. Yeah. <laughs> so where have you been with this? Um, we have been just through Ontario. So we've gone north up. Um, north of Alberta, just Ontario. Park. That's like a ten hours, twelve hour drive north just by itself. People don't realize how yeah. big Ontario is. Yeah, we uh, we've been north of Algonquin up to Mattawa. Um, so we have Mattawa, North Bay. We love Prince Edward County, so we travel east a bit. Um, we've gone a bit west. Right now, we're permanently down at a site on Lake Erie. Um, we've done the south of Sherkston, like everybody knows about yeah. that. Um, so yeah, just kind of finding out whatever campgrounds we can. We don't do the provincial parks though. Mm. Um, we prefer just kind of doing the mom and pop and the small family owned campgrounds and supporting them. So what's next? Do you have like a destination type of thing where you want to go to the States or wherever? Do you have, you know, I mean, I I look at my parents who dragged us around as kids. And then once they got to the situation where you are and the kids are going their own way, then they said, screw it. And they they went big like you guys did. So uh, do do you see this continuing with you guys? This was long-term planning. Yeah, we've (laughs) ultimately decided, I mean, we want to retire to Florida eventually. Hope You know, that's the plan. Cool. Um, but until we find the brick and mortar we want to settle down to, then, yeah, we're looking Tennessee, Texas, Grand Canyon, all the way down the coast. So, yeah, this is a long-term plan for traveling yeah. to enjoy our retirement. Are you surprised how much you like it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I never want to come home. You talked about that first uh, trip, and it was a nightmare, and, you know, you can understand why and such. But what is it now about it that you like? you get to check out you know i just we were down on the weekend and i was just able to relax i didn't have to worry about you know like dog hair the cat hair in the corner I didn't have to worry about, <laughs> mom we don't have anything in the fridge you know it's just yeah. you get to the lake you park 
you just get that breath of fresh air and then the people coming in with their bonfires, just something and you get that smell walking into the trailer and you just put it all behind you and you literally tune it all out. What do you have any tips for anybody who's thinking about this? Do it. Do it. You don't have did to you guys it. did you guys experiment at all or rent or anything before you went out and bought? You just went, okay, let's go. No, I mean, that's my husband. Anybody who knows us, I'm like, yeah, they don't expect anything different from us, right? Um, mm. But no, I mean, you can definitely rent. You can, there's many companies out there who um, have people who will rent their RV for you. Yeah. So you can try it. You don't have to make that step. You don't have to have that huge financial investment just in case you don't like it. Yeah. Um, but no, honestly, if if I can enjoy it and I love it as much as I do, yeah. If you can just kind of check your head at the door and just kind of leave your head open and mind open a little bit, it's it's such an it's such a great experience just to be able to explore and not have to worry about anything. So yeah, Nick, no, I wouldn't even think twice about it. Nikki Fiera with his RV enthusiast. You can read her story in the spec. Uh, just a few years ago, decided to take it up and uh, are never looking back. Nikki, good luck. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks, Scott. You have a great day. We certainly know of uh, uh, the, the Niagara area and its wineries. And the colleges, uh, college and university, very much geared towards that. And also, brewing. Uh, Niagara College has a tremendous uh, brew course, which is uh, is is getting uh, known more and more over time. And certainly with this latest accomplishment, the final term students from Niagara College tapped into a Grand National Champion title, along with multiple new medals for their student-crafted brews at a recent U.S. Open College Beer Championship. To talk more about all of this, John Downey with us, brewmaster, professor, Niagara College, teaching brewery, and with us now. John, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. I am very well. Thank you. So, John, first of all, tell us about this course, what it involves. Uh, it's a four-semester straight course, so we don't take a break in the summer, so we're working right now. Um, it, it basically, you know, two, two semesters introduction, two semesters of uh, basically the polishing and finishing. Uh, and uh, we have about 18 to 20 students in each class. So at any time we have you know, between 60 and 80 students on campus. And obviously, I'm guessing there's a huge demand for this course. There's lots uh, lining up to get in. Is that accurate? Oh, yeah. I know for the first eight or so years of the program, because we've been going since 2010, uh, we had like 100% placement. Uh, I think it's you know dropped off a little bit since then, but the industry is still growing and expanding. Um, and, you know, our students are getting jobs all over Canada, the U.S., and around the world, too. So what would this course teach you? Is it all about the brewing side of it, or are there other aspects to it? Uh, the, the, the focus is on being a brewmaster. The course is brewmaster and brewery operations management. Um, so, we're, you know, teaching them brewing in the practical brewery here and the teaching brewery uh, is a, it's a very large part of it. They do that every one day a week for the whole uh, four semesters that they're here. Uh, sensory is another very important one. They do that one day a week for the whole time they're here. So learning about the tastes, the flavors, the characters of beer. And then they get into you know, the more technical sides in sciences, biology, chemistry, uh, and, and the management sides in uh, some of the business aspects of the course, too. How do you explain the success of this course? Uh, we have a phenomenal staff here. We have amazing support from the college. Uh, along the way, we've grown. We're now five full-time uh, brewmaster uh, instructors here. Um, it's just incredible. We've, we've developed and find the course as the industry has changed, too. I mean, the industry's grown 
incredibly since we opened in 2010. Uh, there were like 60 breweries in Ontario then. Now there's over 400. So, you know, it's, it's, it's grown rapidly. We've had to change along the way too. And we've adapted and been able to uh, keep up with the, um, with, with the needs of the market for sure. Uh, this is going to sound like a, a, a very naive question, but compare making wine to making beer. Is one easier than the other? Is one more difficult? Uh, do you want, not even want to go there? Uh, <laughs> oh, of course, there's the friendly rivalry we always have here. Um, but, but, you know, wine is a lot of viticulture. It's the growing of the grapes. It's the agriculture mm. involved, the terroir, the, you know, the, the sun, days of sun, the hours of sunlight and all that kind of stuff. And we have a bit of that, too, in, in our hops. Uh, being being grown in a very similar manner to grapes, um, but you know from then on it's all fermentation. They just kind of squish the grapes and throw the yeast in. But we take uh, malted barley and hops and uh, other ingredients too, like uh, Gian's beer here. I used a used a significant amount of rye in it um, to create more of a complex product. There are more flavors and aromas in beer than there are in wine, which is generally you know underappreciated. The fact that there is more complexity to the product. We hear so much that the brewery industry is changing, that, um, you know, typical beers maybe not doing as well, more uh, craft brewers doing better, seltzers, stuff like that. This this is really expanding, isn't it? It is. I mean, the, the, the choices are becoming more and more, the, the styles, the types, uh, new, new, and new developments or just rebirth of older developments or rebranding or re restyling like seltzers are, you know, something that's been, been around since, you know, Bottles and James and Zima and, uh, mm. you know, uh, all those sort of things back in the 90s. But uh, lately they're getting a rebirth being, you know, more craft, using more interesting flavors, more, you know, technical brewing used to put them together and so on. It's it's definitely inter an interesting time for the industry. And the flavors and tastes, I mean, the customers nowadays want change. They want the difference. They want the variety. Um, they're, they're not, you know, they can still get their 2-4 of blue or Canadian or whatever and to drink on the dock, but uh, now and nowadays, you're seeing a lot more uh, of the craft beers alongside them in the cooler, uh, because people want something a bit more than just that, you know, the same old stuff. So let's talk about this competition. Uh, what did you win, and and what is it like to go down into a into a U.S. competition and do well there? Uh, historically, as a brewery, we've done very well in the U.S. We were uh, we've won you know over fifty medals in the last ten years as the teaching brewery. And the students have been entering this competition now for six years, and every year they seem to get better and better. And this year was just just amazing. And the U.S. Open College Beer Championship, it's run by uh, a group of friends who um, basically got together, to, decided they wanted to start a beer competition in 2008, I think it was, 2007, 2008, uh, just for beer. And uh, they basically have grown that competition year over year uh, and decided along the way, uh, I got involved with them. I helped them with some judging and directing, and uh, we decided to uh, add a college championship that uh, we've done for now six years, I believe. Uh, they also judge cider, beer, whiskey, and spirits, and all kinds of things. So it's becoming one of the biggest competitions in North America, and the only competition where students, uh, home brewers, uh, you know, cider makers, spirits, and you know, uh, whiskey makers all get a chance to enter competitions. But the college one is really the key here. And what sort of recognition does the college get because of this? Does the, uh, obviously, this helps. Um, of course. I mean, the, the marketing and the promotion that the, uh, that the college can get out of this is amazing. The students themselves, I mean, they're, they're so proud of their work, and their work ethic is absolutely incredible. Um, but when, when they're brewing in here, 
Uh, it is just amazing to see them, and not just this class, all the classes. I mean, my students want to be here. My students want to be taking this course. They want to be uh, mm. learning how to brew. They're looking forward to getting a career, looking forward to getting a job in a very unique industry. And the, the U.S. Open College Beer Championships kind of gives them uh, a, a, a benchmark as to how they're doing, um, not just for us, but obviously all the other competitions. I mean, we're in competition since uh, Lourdes University, uh, University of Michigan, uh, Auburn, uh, Schoolcraft, all kinds of places. And just to be able to uh, compete with them and then to be able to excel and, you know, not beat them, but do better than them is amazing. So you, you talked about placement and the jobs in this in this industry and such. Would it be more for craft brewers or are larger brewers interested in these students as well for what they can bring? Oh, everybody. We have brewers doing all kinds of things everywhere. I mean, in Hamilton alone, uh, Merritt and Fairweather are owned by graduates. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have graduates working at Grain and Grit, Collective Arts, Shed. Yeah. Uh, another graduate owns Grim- Newark out in Grimsby. Uh, we have students who own canning companies. Uh, they work in sales and marketing for hop suppliers, grain suppliers. I mean, it really is incredible where they're going to. How did you get into teaching this? I came to college with the idea for this in about 2007. And uh, they kind of said, oh, we're in wine country, but let's hear what you got to say. And they listened and talked to the uh, Ontario Craft Brewers Association and other people that they knew and uh, decided I had a good idea. And uh, we ran with it and we've uh, developed this to what it is today. As you mentioned, obviously Niagara known for its wineries and such, but I think it's great that both of these industries are coming together and sharing. And I'll give you a quick story. Uh, we went to a wine tasting a few years ago, and uh, and by the time um, it was for lunch, I was wined out. So I asked for a beer, and they served a beer from Niagara College. And I thought, what a great idea. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> they do say it takes a lot of good beer to make wine. No, it was amazing that, you know, that, that, that one industry supports the other that way. So it's fascinating. All right, John Downing with his brewmaster, professor, Niagara Col- uh, College Teaching Brewery, uh, and have had success at the U.S. Open College Beer Championship. John, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. We remember during the global pandemic that uh, people were just eating like a banshee, people making stuff at home. Remember bread makers? Weren't they on the increase sales of bread makers and stuff like that? People couldn't go out, so they just stayed at home and ate. Uh, and during that time, ice cream saw a bit of, a, of, uh, of an increase in, in uh, consumption. But for the most part, it's kind of been trending downwards. Uh, widely regarded as a beloved treat for the masses, it's been experiencing a steady decline in demand within the Canadian market for a while now. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab, Dalhousie University, and has an opinion piece in the Toronto Sun. Sylvain, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am well. How about you guys? So far, so good, and it's great to be talking to you about something other than the uh, screaming and yelling going on about high food prices. But let's talk about ice cream. And thank you for that. <laughs> I appreciate it. There you go. Well, thank you for entertaining us with something other than, you know, the obvious death and destruction we're doing on a day-to-day basis. I'm just kidding with you, Sylvan. So talk about that. What about the price? Has the price of this product, has it, has it been stable? Has it been going up and down or up too? Uh, year to year, it's been actually uh, up about 8%, which is the low average. Uh, but actually, if you look at uh, 
March, April, and May, uh, ice cream uh, prices are are down, uh, including June, actually. So uh, you would expect uh, May and June, people want more ice cream. Uh, the popularity of uh, of this delicacy would actually push prices higher. It didn't happen, and uh, and I started to look into the data. In fact, since 1970, as you mentioned earlier, um, access to ice cream is not consumption of ice cream access, but it it is a clear indicator that demand for ice cream is down. So in 1970, it was above 12 liters per capita. Now it's down to about four liters per mm. capita. So it's really much less popular than 40, 50 years ago. Uh, obviously, it's not the price. It's no greater than anything else. Is this because it's perhaps one of the world's oldest treats? It's, 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 it's an old faithful as opposed to new offerings on the way. I think that's part of the problem. It's a treat. It, it is seen as a treat. Mm. And more and more people are you know, concerned about their health. Uh, they're following uh, a different... Uh, health lifestyle, a lot of people, let's face it, a lot of people are lactose intolerant. A lot of people who come to Canada from abroad are lactose intolerant. Mm. That's not helping demand for ice cream. And a lot of people have noticed that formulas have changed, and they don't just put cream in there. They put a lot of different ingredients, and people just moved away from ice cream, and they started to eat things like gelato, very refreshing, more and more popular. Sorbets, uh, they're healthier also. And I think that's kind of what's going on. The competition uh, against ice cream has really changed the last 50 years. Uh, can you see this as something that will return? Can you come up with a better or a lighter ice cream, or is that kind of just, you know, like chocolate? How do you, you can't make locale chocolate? Well, it's a good question, but what's the, what's the, for adults out there, what's the number one excuse to get you an ice cream parlor? It's the kids. Uh, yeah. Kids will actually be the ones motivating parents to get out of the house and go for ice cream, but there are fewer kids around. We have fewer children, and so I think that's part of the story as well. And that's why I, retail actually sales are strong; they're still strong and they're growing. But in restaurant ice cream parlors, there are fewer and fewer of them. So how do you explain that uh, retail is still doing well, but not so much in the grocery store? I think people just want to uh, be in control of how ice cream is going to be served. Uh, I don't know if you've been to an ice cream part of late, but you get a lot of stuff beside ice cream. I mean, a lot of different, like chocolate on top of that, uh, cookie crumbs. uh, uh, You get gummy bears. I mean, there's so much stuff stuff that goes to the ice cream <laughs> you barely see it i think a lot of people are just sticking to uh, basics they buy their favorite ice cream a couple of different kinds they keep it in their freezer and and that's about it i think that's what people really appreciate these days so if you're in the ice cream business how are you interpreting this uh go retail uh, I think retail hmm. is really a, a growing uh, market. In fact, if you go to the freezer aisle, you may have noticed the freezer aisles are much larger. They're longer now uh, just because a lot of people uh, are trying to save money uh, as well. And, uh, and ice cream is, uh, is likely to be more popular to be eaten at home versus uh, serving uh, scoops at a parlor.
Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie, and a opinion piece in the sun on ice cream and how we're not eating as much as we used to. Uh, Sylvain, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. If you're old enough to remember, you might remember when, uh, well, a, a Air Canada jet uh, ran out of fuel and land in Gimli, uh, landed in Gimli, Manitoba. And the rest is history, as they say. It's the 40th anniversary of that. Happened yesterday. Uh, Barb Gluck is with us, president of the Gimli Glider Museum in Gimli, Manitoba. And here now, Barb, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. A little tired, but, uh, you know, it's <laughs> always invigorating to be here at the exhibit and meet people. So this is obviously a busy time of year for you. Tell everybody what happened 40 years ago. Well, there was a fueling issue with the changeover from metric uh, to metric uh, with this brand new aircraft, and uh, there were a couple of different things that happened with a sensor that uh, had been not operating properly for the first three flights. Uh, so it uh, it became an issue in the flight, and it uh, was compounded by the fact that the uh, digital readouts weren't operating properly either. So when the uh, alerts started to go off for the crew. They weren't quite sure what was going on, and uh, the first alert went off, and that uh, you know raised their interest, and they started looking in manuals, and they encountered that there were probably no pages that covered this particular situation. And the second alert went off, and uh, so they had to change their "We need to land in Winnipeg" to an actual mayday, uh, realizing that uh, all of a sudden the uh, cockpit had gone dark, the plane went dark, and both engines were gone. So that necessitated, uh, with the air traffic controllers getting busy trying to find a landing site for them between uh, Red Lake, Ontario, and uh, a spot before they were close to the ground. And uh, the co-pilot had trained here in Gimli, and he knew how long the landing strip was here and that it could take an aircraft of this size. other airstrips, uh, they couldn't accommodate the plane. So the final choice actually ended up being Gimli. And uh, they made a turn, almost a 90-degree turn, in the air as they were uh, coming down towards the earth uh, descending. And uh, Captain Pearson was aware that by the time he got to Gimli, he was still too far off the ground to reach the actual landing strip. So he made an announcement to the co-pilot that he was going to do what they call a four-slip procedure, which means you literally take that aircraft and put the bulk of it into the uh, slipstream, as they call it. Uh, somewhat like a sail, sail, only the sail is being used on a boat to increase the speed. On this uh, huge airliner, it decreases the speed and allowed him to have a better attempt at uh, getting down on that actual landing site what they didn't know was that former CFB uh, runway was now a racing car track. So when they landed, um, they were quite surprised to find that there were cars on the sides. There were people in trailers, and uh, he actually impaled himself <laughs> going down the runway at several miles an hour on a metal rail in the center of the track which he said was actually uh, a good thing to happen because he wasn't sure that he wasn't going to go off the end of the strip at the uh, speed that he touched down at. 
And all of this while the plane was literally out of fuel, like they were yes. gliding. Yes, it, they were gliding. It's, he was doing a gliding maneuver, and it's called a force lift. And it's incredibly important that you keep it at that angle when you turn it at that angle because you need to still have wind, wind under your wings to keep you afloat. So it's a challenging maneuver. He had a lot of experience uh, in his past with gliding and teaching it and whatnot. And uh, quite frankly, I mean, what else was your choice when you're in a situation like that than to try Plan B? <laughs> How? What are the chances, though, that you know this happens over Gimli, where there's a, an airstrip like this, that there's a pilot on board that just happens to be well versed on how to do? Like, I mean, my goodness, the planets were correctly aligned that day. Yeah, I don't think any of us, including himself, uh, you know, we have a lot of comments that come in about, uh, you know, divine intervention, karma, this kind of thing. Mm. And I think we'll probably all, you know, go to the beyond not knowing exactly what it was. And most of us are quite aware that had there been a different pilot and a different uh, co-pilot in there uh, who wasn't aware of the Gimli Air Base, uh, the circumstances could have been quite different. My, what a story, and it's still a story 40 years later. So how do you, talk us about talk to us about the Gimli Glider Museum and, and how you commemorate this. Uh, well, since we've been open, it has just come to the forefront more and more when people come in and they see the story, um, and they begin to understand how long the passengers were here, because uh, Air Canada, you know, they were in Winnipeg an hour away, so... We weren't necessarily prepared to have a large passenger plane drop into our, our you know, yeah. midst of us. So the racing car people, the Winnipeg Sports Car Club, who's been here for five decades, uh, they just did a, did a phenomenal job because these people came down the chutes without uh, glasses. Uh, they came yeah. down the chutes without their shoes, uh, holding children in some instances. So uh, very many of them, when they got to the ground, it was like, where are we? Uh, totally unexpected yeah. because they thought they were going to Winnipeg. There were no ambulances. There were no fire trucks there to respond. Uh, they came shortly after. And so the Winnipeg Sports Car uh, Club people came forward with fire extinguishers for the uh, friction and the smoke that came from, you know, fuselage uh, mm. uh, metal on the uh, metal strip. And um, they took charge of the passengers and brought out tables and chairs and offered coffee and water and uh, by then, local police were there, local fire were there, and the ambulance, or pardon me, the hospital had been put on alert for a large plane coming in with a difficulty. And, uh, yeah, so it then became the town's responsibility for a while to take care of these people and, and get them until uh, they went and took them into a hotel to which, which we, uh, responded when all these people arrived at their doors. What are we to do with them? <laughs> Oh, man. And, uh, so they fed them and uh, whatnot. And, uh, yeah, so there's been a lot of interest in that. And so that was our focus this time uh, for the anniversary because uh, a lot of the scientific things, the engineering, is well-known and well-documented, hmm. not so much the local involvement or the uh, what the air traffic controllers were dealing with in the tower. A great story. Barb Gluck with us, president of the Gimli Glider Museum in Gimli, Manitoba. Yesterday uh, marked the 40th anniversary an extraordinary incident when a Air Canada passenger uh, jet, uh, literally no fuel, glides to a landing in Gimli, Manitoba, and the rest is history, as they say. Barb, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. Bye-bye. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Elon Musk and company are rebranding Twitter. It is now called X. No more bird, no more tweets, uh, no more any of the thing that we remember Twitter for. Uh, again, it amazes me how so many people are fascinated and literally obsessed with this man and everything he does, and not so much with his successful companies like Tesla or SpaceX, but his bombs uh, or some would refer to, uh, and social media platforms that nobody is interested anymore in, in anymore, so they say, and that being Elon Musk. Uh, how do you explain it? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor to Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing just fine, thank you. Now, should we warn your listeners that this segment of the show is rated X? <laughs> Why are we so fascinated with this man? And it's not about his successes, it's about when he trips up and does something wacky for Twitter with Twitter, which to me, I, I think he just bought like a hamster to keep himself and us all amused. <laughs> well, he may very well have done that, Scott. You know, the day of the corporate tycoon is past. Uh, there was a time, say, at the turn of the last century, when these captains of industry really captured our imagination and we wanted to know what they were doing. But today, you see very few of these single entrepreneurs running their show. Shows are run by committees and, and CEOs who primarily stick to the shadows. They don't want to be out in the limelight. And Elon Musk breaks that mold. He loves being out in front. He loves the publicity. And as a result, we, we take an interest in him the way we would any other celebrity like the Kardashians or you know whoever is the, the, the uh, pro footballer of the day. Uh, it seems, though, rather than focusing on the SpaceX and the Teslas, we focus on his hobby. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, in this case, the, the question has been right from the beginning is, first, why are you buying Twitter? And then, B, what do you plan to do with it? Um, we know that Elon sort of fell uh, out of love with Twitter at one point. They took him off their network for a while, much like they banned Donald Trump for spreading false information. And then he got on his high horse as Elon got on his high horse and said, no, you shouldn't be banning free speech. So I'll tell you what I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to buy the company. He put an offer on the table and then almost instantly regretted it, tried to take the offer off the table. Mm. And then uh, the Twitter uh, board took him to court and said, wait a minute, if you make an offer, you can't just play with us that way. We're a publicly traded company. There are shareholders who've got to be involved. So he was forced to leave the offer on the table, and ultimately he was forced to buy the company. And since then, we've been wondering what he's going to do. He's done all kinds of strange things. You know, he he tried to get to a premium service. Do you want your account verified that this is the real Scott Thompson, not a, a surrogate out there? That lasted about three days, and it turned out fake Scott Thompson showed up just as fast as the real one. He, he tried to put Donald Trump back on even though Donald Trump started his own social media company called Truth Social. Uh, He's talked about starting his own version of a Facebook kind of a thing. And we just don't know. But as a result, uh, it's a shipwreck, and we all like watching those. Um, So how is Twitter doing? Uh, Why is it still relevant? Many said years ago it wasn't. So how is it doing? Well, I think it could be relevant. Here's the thing. I think it could be relevant. But all social media platforms exist as an advertising vehicle. And since Elon Musk took over Twitter, uh, uh, not quite a year ago, actually, 
uh, the number of dollars they've been getting from advertisers has been going down. Advertisers said, look, there's too much controversy here. We don't think this platform is secure. So we're going to take our dollars, advertising dollars, and go elsewhere. So his advertisers are down as a result. He's tried to cut costs by, by uh, terminating or laying off at least half of his workforce and uh, at the same time has mused about other revenue streams, including getting people to pay. As Because of all of that, a competitor that you may have heard of, now the big name is Meta, but we all know it as the company that runs Facebook and Instagram, said, well, maybe there is a chance for somebody else in this market to get into this tweeting business. So Mark Zuckerberg and company started their version of it called Threads. Threads debuted about three weeks ago, Scott, and already it has 200 million people signed up for it. How they're using it, I don't know. But clearly there were people who saying, I don't like the games going on at Twitter. And I have to wonder about this. Twitter or the word tweet had got into our vocabulary the same way Google got into our vocabulary. I'm going hmm. to Google something and it's, it's become part of the lexicon. To throw that away, I could actually argue that was the most valuable thing about this company when he bought it. To throw it all away makes no sense to me at all. Uh, and that was my next question. Why bother rebranding this? As you said, the tweet, uh, uh, the bird, all of it has become a part of our vocabulary. But we're sitting here talking about it. So clearly yeah. that's the reason he's doing it, because he's got us all following. Well, that's part of it. Oddly, Scott, there is another answer to this. And for whatever reason, uh, because he's an entrepreneur and he doesn't need a reason for this, the X is his favorite thing. So, you know, one of his companies is called mm. SpaceX. Uh, one of the Teslas is the Model X. Yep. He likes sometimes posing for pictures with his arms crossed in the form of an X. So apparently X is one of those things that resonates with him. And when he got the chance to do it, he came up with this logo. Even the logo you see today has been billed as only an interim logo. It's, it's designed to make that bird go away and the blue go away. It's in black. But even now, he's saying the real logo will debut in another few weeks or months. I don't know. Uh, he's a fellow who believes that controversy helps him. I think stability helps you. Uh, is this just a personal pet project for him? Does he have to turn this around? Because at the end of the day, it's still here. Um, and, and as you said, it'll be interesting to see once he rebrands it, if it still is as popular, but, it, but it, it seems it's not necessarily supposed to be a successful business. It's a toy for him. Although money is money. <laughs> yes. Money is money. And 58 billion is 58 billion. Well, Scott, I have two answers for you. One from a corporate perspective, if all hell breaks loose and this company falls to pieces, He's got himself a big corporate write-off, and he can use that to offset his gains from the other companies like SpaceX and Tesla. And don't forget, Hyperloop is another Elon Musk venture out there. So he can always use the tax write-off. However, it's unusual to see somebody buy an ongoing venture for the price he paid only to drive it into the ground. So you have to believe that somewhere, at least in his brain anyway, he's got a plan for bigger and better things. But again, I'll be honest with you, normally you see this roll out in a nice orderly fashion. And those of us who teach at a business school can say, ah, yes, there's the plan. I can see where he's trying to go. He's on his road to Shangri-La. Here, it's one step one way, one step another way. I wish I could say I see a deeper plan, but I don't. Will this help or hurt his financial uh, issues? 
well, I don't think it's going to attract advertisers overnight. Uh, also, if you just change the name, in other words, I can call a Ford Edsel the this Thompson. It doesn't necessarily mean it's changed in any significant way. If if this now leads to a series of new enhancements or new capabilities or new things you can do, great. But if he's just taking the old thing, what do they call it, putting lipstick on the pig, yep. I, I'm not sure it makes things any better. Marvin Ryder with us, Professor DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, Elon Musk, Twitter, and X, whatever he's up to. And I guess what we've learned in all of this, Marvin, is you never name your products after your kids as an Etzel. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Marvin. We all know about Habitat for Humanity helping people get into homes a program that's been around for a while and has been quite successful. But after decades of helping low-income Canadians get into homes, Habitat for Humanity is witnessing a profound change in who it is assisting. The charity is increasingly backstopping mortgage loans for higher-income households in yet another sign of how unaffordable Canada has become, and that is for everybody. We hear so much about affordable housing. Well, what does affordable housing mean? No matter how old you are, no matter what end of the socioeconomic uh, uh, ladder that you are on, uh, if the middle class can't get into a home, how are those trying to get into the middle class getting into a home? If there's a crisis, we all know it affects those uh, that are at the lower end more than those that aren't. So any crisis that affects us all always affects a segment of the population greater. But when it's affecting everybody, what happens? Where do you go? Uh, and Habitat for Humanity is seeing uh, changes as well. Let's bring in Sean Ferris, CEO of Habitat for Humanity, Hamilton, in here now. Sean, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Very well. Thanks, Scott. So explain to everybody who may not know how Habitat for Humanity works. Uh, Habitat for Humanity plays in the affordable housing space. So what we do is uh, we build homes in partnership with our future homeowners uh, using volunteers and, and donations wherever we can. And uh, we have those homes independently appraised and we set homeowners up with uh, a geared to income, uh, interest free uh, and no down to pay payment mortgage. So thereby allowing folks who couldn't save up the down payment or couldn't get a mortgage for a house in Hamilton access to, to home ownership. Uh, obviously, we've seen a change post-pandemic. How have you seen that change? Well, certainly there's lots of uh, need out there for housing. Uh, you know, everything is going up. It's, uh, it's creating pressure all over the place. And, and you know, myself, I've had to replace a roof and, and a furnace and, and those things, uh, mm. you know, they're affected by inflation as well, right? So lots of pressure in terms of uh, getting into home ownership. lots of pressure around maintaining and staying in your home as well. Uh, with the housing shortage, obviously these issues have increased. How do you balance who, who, who you take on, who you can help here? Yeah, it's a tough question. You know, we uh, we would love to serve everybody, but not everybody is a fit for home ownership. Not everybody is a fit for habitat. Um, and so, what we try to do is uh, take people in a, on a first come, first serve basis, and and do our best to to serve the folks that uh, we think can be successful in our program. Um, and then we expand our service offerings as well, um, which uh, is, is really encouraging. We're, we have a partnership with City Housing where we're taking vacant units and bringing them back online. Uh, we're doing repairs and, and other things to help out uh, homeowners who may be in need as well. So this niche that you first started, you're seeing grow quite a bit. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's a benefit to the community. And uh, if we can make it fit with within our mission and vision, then uh, we're going to go after it. Uh, as you mentioned, Habitat for Humanity is a fit for certain people, not for everybody. However, Sean, considering what you've seen in in the shortage that we're in and the crisis that we're in, I mean, people are living in tents uh, in small towns, big towns, cities, whatever, right the way across the land. Is there a solution you can see with the formula you're using or that others are using uh, that can really help this? Because it seems that here's a grassroots situation that's working, yet it, it appears governments can't seem to, to get this working happening. Yeah, it's a challenging problem. You know, I, at Habitat, we say that everyone deserves a safe and decent place to live. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no one solution. Habitat, Habitat is one small part. Uh, but Habitat's part of the Hamilton is Home collective of affordable housing providers that uh, span a range of uh, housing, supportive housing, rental housing, and other services. So it, it's not just one organization or one entity. We all have to pull together to to find solutions, be innovative, and uh, you know make sure that we can give people the uh, the shelter that they need. What is encouraging here, Sean, is that you say you're working with others, whether it's city organizations or whatever, to try to get out of these silos and get everybody working together. Absolutely. Partnership's the keyword. Uh, where do you see this going? Uh, is this con- going to continue to grow? How can I, I understand your housing projects are, cur- are currently full? You're, you're doing as much as you possibly can. What's the future here? Well, we want to continue to expand and and grow our, our service offerings. Um, we're talking to developers and looking at, uh, you know, innovative ways of having access to affordable housing. Uh, there's other initiatives that may come forth from the city. You know, for example, Engage Hamilton is uh, doing some investigation around inclusionary zoning, which could provide some more uh, affordable housing options. Um, and we've got uh, great community partners who are stepping up and, and looking at this as a real problem. Uh, that that needs some attention. So, you know, as we all band together, you know, and put more attention on this, it, it creates opportunities for us to find more solutions. With this crisis now being right in front of the public, is that going to lead to more solutions? Are you confident we can we can work together and get this get a, get at least something accomplished? Well, we're we're always going to have to to work at it. I mean, I don't think it's going to be something that will be solved, and then we can just focus on something else. Yeah, Housing will yeah. always be uh, requiring of our focus, and it's great that it is at the forefront, and everyone's talking about it because that's how we get the dollars, that's how we get the uh, the attention at Habitat, that's how we get the volunteers and the and the donations. So, um, super important that we keep it at the forefront because it's it's important for all of us. Sean Ferris, with his CEO of Habitat for Humanity, uh, seeing a, uh, a a different clientele coming in to visit Habitat for Humanity, really similar to the stories we're hearing at food banks. Uh, Sean. Thank you so much for the time. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We have talked about housing a lot. I find it incredibly frustrating that people are living in tents in every shape, size, town from here uh, east to west. And we're arguing over green belts, and all four parties want to build a million homes. How the heck did we get here? And why does it seem that we haven't learned anything from this? And in a recent piece for the Globe and Mail, Ted Mallet and Robin Weeb argue, talk about the housing crisis not improving until all levels of government tackle it head on. To talk more about all of this, Ted Mallet with us, Director of Economic Forecasting, Conference Board of Canada, here now. Ted, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. You're very welcome. Thanks. 
Ted, I, I find this very frustrating when, um, uh, and, and I'm not into bulldozing the green belt or any of that stuff, but I think this housing issue is completely a self-inflicted wound. We just did not address this when we saw it coming. Uh, now we've got uh, extremists screaming, don't build on the green belt because we've got tons of land. Uh, meanwhile, uh, the other side, where is the land? If there's tons of land, why isn't it serviced? Why don't we have houses built on it? It just seems that we've got two extremes, a train wreck waiting to happen here, and both running at each other full throttle. How do you balance this? Well, I think frustration is a good way to describe it, and that's why we're, uh, we, we put the op-ed in, uh, in, in the paper on that uh, uh, there's there's a lot of issues that all seem to come together to help create the problem and and maybe trying to identify uh, in the past uh, you know who did something wrong might not be the best way to uh, kind of move forward but I think we have three levels of government all with some degree or a great degree of of uh, interest or or skin in the game on this sort of thing we're not going to get any kind of movement forward unless we have all three kind of come together and deal with this. Uh, this, this series of problems more holistically, because in order to make movement, I think what we have to do is, is identify, uh, uh, we have to change some minds in some cases, we have to identify the kinds of trade-offs that uh, what's necessary, but uh, uh, right now we're only sort of debating the, uh, the, the segments of particular problems, whether it's uh, uh, rental costs in some area, building uh, on green belts and others, uh, infill construction, missing middle, uh, they're all being dealt with uh, compartmentalized. I think we have to bring mm. them all together uh, in, in a much deeper conversation about how we move forward uh, on this uh, in the future. You bring up a valid point here too, Ted, because everybody seems to address this problem depending upon what their agenda is, where is in order to have a crisis, it affects everybody right across the board, whether it's this, that, or the other. And I don't think people understand that. It's all about, you know, when you bring in the housing crisis, well, it's all about helping this segment, or it's all about helping that, helping that segment, where, you know, it seems that we come after this after the fact with all sorts of policy to help people with programs who uh, are trying to cope with a crisis rather than uh, preventing the crisis from happening in the first place. Uh, yes, and I think we've uh, we've had lots of warning signs uh, the past uh, decade where interest rates have been uh, really very very low, which has helped kind of financialize the uh, the housing sector, and it's turned it into uh, a real benefit to the, for the people already bought into uh, houses. Uh, market values uh, rose tremendously because the carrying costs were became much more reasonable with with falling interest rates, and of course that snapped back. Uh, severely causing uh, you know, big problems for many people who are now uh, are very highly invested in real estate. So uh, we knew this kind of problem was uh, was coming, and uh, there was really very little foresight in terms of how to deal with these kinds of uh, things. And now, now we're we're left with how do we solve this? Uh, uh, a in the short term, which I don't think is uh, necessarily possible, but B, mm. how do we kind of avoid these things in, in the future? And that's where we need some uh, some some sort of good thought leaders, uh, really from all three levels of government and, and those in the industries and those with, uh, with, with, with interest uh, in the matter uh, to try to solve these uh, items. Um, how, and I know this is a crystal ball question, Ted, and you said it's very complex. What's the first step to moving this forward? Because, again, it's very un- everybody ignored this until all of a sudden the last election and every single party wants to build 
uh, a million plus homes, which is is bizarre when you consider uh, not only the issue but the politics uh, of this all. So uh, it seems that building and housing is a bad word. It seems for the last five, ten, twenty years prior to the pandemic, it wasn't it was un, it wasn't environmentally sound to build. Are we changing that attitude? Are we realizing? We have to find a solution here? Well, yes, definitely. Uh, I think we have to uh, come across as trying to tackle all the segments of uh, you know, as many as, as we can. So there's, there's zoning, there's interest rates, there's the, uh, the, the aging of the population, sort of the boomer population moving through the, uh, uh, the workforce. Uh, there's the work from home uh, uh, trend that uh, caused some spikes. Environmental protection, a very important element. The population surge. Uh, we have to bring this, these all onto the table at the same time. Uh, from you know anybody who's uh, who's connected to this area, and that's going to be all three levels of the government, to start discussing this because uh, you know we 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 can't do this uh, really solving the problem one piece at a time because there's always the argument that oh this this one measure is not going to actually solve the problem. It's actually yeah. very true. But it shouldn't be a, a reason not to do it because uh, we're going to have to come up with you know a half dozen to a dozen measures to have any start in in deal with dealing with this over the uh, the medium term. It seems that some care about the green belt than they do the housing crisis. Will the threat of green belt uh, nibbling away at it? Will the threat of that get people moving to get other stuff built so we don't have to? Well, I think that's that's part of the uh, the concern because uh, you know yes, I think everybody would like to see green belt uh, protected, but what does that actually mean? So yeah. that means uh, uh, more infill or intensification of of uh, uh, urban properties for the moment, uh, and is that necessarily going to fly with the people who are are, are living in already very, either very crowded conditions or or you know dense population areas or those who are in kind of traditional. Uh, uh, suburban communities with 50-foot lots and, and so on. So there's there's a lot of vested interests in here that uh, uh, really have to be tackled uh, effectively, so that uh, uh, you know everybody's going to come uh, you know against something if it means uh, shifting away from their uh, what they what they like. But if if we if we collectively uh, help make uh, uh, solutions where you get 60% of what you're uh, uh, looking for instead of 100%, then maybe that's still better off for for most of the population. The other part of the challenge is, that, of course, for, for the past uh, decade, um, you know, financialization where, where household or home prices have been a very, very good investment. And people yeah. kind of got sucked into the belief that, uh, uh, you know, that's always going to be the case. And so you can't have a housing affordability, or should I say housing affordability and housing as an investment tool. Are the, well, let's be honest, Ted. Let's be honest, Ted. This stop this stops being investment as soon as you build more and supply drives the price down. It's a simple it's simple supply supply and demand well, economics. Yes, so that's right. Uh, so, are we going to build a constituency around that? Uh, how do we message that effectively so that uh, uh, we're not just protecting one uh, you know group of of uh, uh, either homeowners or or um, home occupants uh, versus another. So you know, governments have to kind of manage this uh, effectively. That uh, you know, not one group gets gets their own way all the time. And that's, that's yeah, we got to man. We have to manage beyond the extremes. That's for sure. Ted Mallet with us. We're out of time. Director of Economic Forecasting Conference Board of Canada. The latest in the Globe and Mail. Uh, the housing crisis won't improve until all levels of government tackle it head on. Ted, thank you for the time. Be well.
You're very welcome. Thanks. You know, it wasn't that long ago. Many were questioning whether the prime minister uh, would even bother with another election or so. And now, uh, as the, the, the heat continues to rise around him, uh, a cabinet shuffle is in the works. Uh, MPs being called back to Ottawa. And in the next couple of days, uh, it looks like we're going to see a cabinet shuffle trying to cool down uh, some of the heat coming out of the prime minister's office. Uh, it's funny, every time you see this uh, something on this on the news, uh, they show a picture of Marco Mendicino. This guy's become the poster boy for, for a cabinet shuffle. Uh, that being said, is the uh, can the prime minister keep a straight face while he's booting someone out of his cabinet for basically doing the same thing that he does? Uh, the uh, safety minister, Marco Mendicino, of course, um, unaware that Bernardo's getting transferred, even though his office gets sent the memos, and even days before, months before, the Prime Minister didn't know either. Just like the Prime Minister didn't know anything uh, about CSIS and the investigation or the allegations of election interference from the Chinese Communist Party until it broke in the news, despite CSIS testifying that, no, they sent that information uh, weeks before, months before. So, uh, again, it's odd that a cabinet shuffle will or will it do uh, the right thing for the Liberal Party? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. And thanks. Hope you're well, too. Your thoughts on a cabinet shuffle? Because it seems the prime minister is guilty of a lot of the things the ministers that are rumored to be leaving have done. Yeah, I mean, I kind of see this less as Trudeau uh, standing as, uh, you know, uh, as judge on the... Uh, on the ministers as uh, really sitting almost two years now after the last election, probably looking at another election in 12 to 18 months and trying to figure out, you know, what team he has to uh, put forward a vision of, you know, why his government should be reelected. And so, you know, on the one hand, kind of clearing out people who don't have an intention of uh, putting their name forward in the next election. And the name of Carolyn Bennett has certainly been put around in, in that context as someone who's likely to be dropped from cabinet. Uh, but then maybe also seeing if there's some uh, new and fresh faces or people who had more junior roles who can, can play more significant ones in trying to give some sense of direction to a government that's looking very tired. Uh, you bring up a valid point. You certainly want the troops with you who are going to head into battle, or in this case, the next election. Carolyn Bennett, a perfect example of that. But she's hardly been the lightning rod that Marco Mendicino has been. Um, is this about who you're going to take into the next election or trying to calm the waters here? Well, I mean, I would think you're, you know, doing a bit of both. I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Mr. Mendicino is, uh, you know, in line for a demotion or to be uh, no longer in cabinet. Uh, we've also, you know, there's some rumors that Ahmed Hussein uh, might also uh, be moved out of housing. You know, so there's a the number of uh, cabinet ministers who are maybe felt to be underperforming or not up to the task of dealing with a really hot issue such as housing, um, you know, being being moved uh, from where they are. So, I mean, part of you know ultimately uh, trying to manage your government is to try and uh, move uh, ministers who have been causing some embarrassment uh, out of the way. Although, you know, again, in a situation like this government, which has been so built around Trudeau and his image, I'm not sure if Canadians are spending a lot of attention or paying a lot of attention to the names of ministers or whether all credit but also all blame really ends up uh, in, in Trudeau's hands uh, as opposed to being stuck to any of these ministers which I suspect most Canadians couldn't name. Uh, um, come uh, this time next week when the shuffle is behind us what do Canadians need to see? What do they need to see that's going to prove to them that something's different here? 
Well, you know, I, I guess building what I just said, I'm not sure if Canadians are really paying a whole lot of attention. If You know, if we were to go down to Jackson Square, I suspect, uh, you know, very few people could name a cabinet minister or certainly not beyond, you know, a couple like Christopher Freeland or maybe uh, Steve Gilbo or, you know, someone they probably wouldn't even know that, you know, we have someone from Burlington and Karina Gould in the in the cabinet or, you know, Philomena Tassi. So, you know, from that point of view, I don't think this really moves a lot, uh, really moves the, the marker, except that it makes the prime minister look like he's being busy. Uh, but I think, you know, the bigger question is, will having a new people in place energize a government, which really seems stuck. It doesn't seem to me that they have had a lot to say about pressing issues to Canadians, whether it's, you know, how they might uh, move on the housing file, how they deal with the fact that the Canadian economy has really not done much for the past 12 to 15 years. And how do you might, you know, how might you retool that for, for better jobs in the future? You know, what's Canada going to do on uh, the question of climate change? Uh, you know, it's been a while since we talked about uh, the, the carbon tax. But, you know, beyond that, is there any real strategy out of this government? So on a number of files, it's hard for, for, for me to see what they're really putting into the window. And even some things that are, you know, big, like in the last budget, putting a whole lot of money to health or, you know, moving forward on a dental care program. Uh, you know, there's been very little public articulation of this as as an achievement and as building to a better lives for Canadians. So it's a government that's kind of not really full of big ideas. And when it does things, it seems hard pressed to really explain why those things are important uh, and for, you know, the good of Canadians. Do you think we'll actually see a dental plan as opposed to here's money, which you can spend on anything? Do you think this will actually form into a plan with this government? Well, I mean, the promise in uh, the 2023 budget is that we were going to see something a bit more formal by the end of the year. So, you know, I think the NDP, in a way, backed the government into the corner and in, in insisting on very rapid rollout of this program, which kind of limited some of the program options. But I think we're going to see a, an important change in, in the kind of structure of that program by year's end in terms of, uh, of how it's going to be rolled out. But even there, you know, there's some real questions about whether the federal government needs to engage the provinces if they're going to run it in a way you know, that really provides people uh, proper access and maybe tries to keep costs down. Uh, about a minute left. Who stays? Who goes in your mind? The environment, uh, environmental minister was on uh, the news just moments ago saying he's off to a meeting for the with the G20. So it looks like he's staying. Um, what are your thoughts? Who gets to move up and, and out? Well, I mean, you know, they're they're watching the Ottawa airport to see which ministers are coming in. And so, you know, we, we <laughs> might see someone like Dominic LeBlanc uh, have a somewhat smaller role given his health issues. Uh, maybe Pity Pat Taylor from, you know, New Brunswick gets a bigger role. People like Sean Fraser, uh, Karina Gould, Marcy and Seamus O'Regan have been seen as potentially getting some, uh, you know, being bumped up a bit, uh, whereas people like Ahmed Hussain and uh, Marco Menachito, you know, are likely to be seeing their way out of cabinet or at least to much more junior roles, you know, for to, to, to believe what the Ottawa buzz is. But, uh, you know, again, I guess we'll see for good on Wednesday. Peter Grant with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, Cabinet Shuffle on the way. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one via email from Jan. And Jan says, people seem to be more interested in what Elon Musk is doing rather than our own politicians and a housing crisis. That is a problem.
Keep right, except to pass. 